Um, today, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. Genesis 4, verses 17 through 26. And the title of this sermon is Progressive Man. Well, as I shared in my email with you this week, I'm a huge fan of church history. Really, all history for that matter. I love learning about those who have gone before us, both good and bad. We can learn from both, can't we? Well, one story from church history is about a man who, to the naked eye, had it made. He was the principal architect in building an entire city. He lived a long life. His grandchildren were incredibly successful. One of them was in the agriculture field. One was involved in the arts. And one was the forerunner to modern technology as we know it today. This man was truly blessed by God. Or was he? If you haven't already figured it out, I'm talking about Cain. The same Cain who was the first offspring of Adam and Eve. The same Cain who ruthlessly murdered his brother Abel. The same Cain who was banished away from his family. And that's what makes this text today somewhat shocking from the very beginning. This man who rebelled against and rejected God lives a life that most of the world would look at and say, that guy prospered. But as we dive into the text, I want us to begin asking the question, what is true prosperity? Let's dive in. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. For simplicity's sake, 
I want us to see that this text breaks down into two main points for today's sermon. Point one, the line of Cain. We'll see that in verses 17 through 24. And point two, the line of Seth in verses 25 and 26. And just like with last week, I believe Moses is intentionally painting a portrait for us of contrast. We're meant to see the the two lines of seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. We're meant to see those two lines of seeds becoming more and more and more distinct and at odds with one another. So point one, the line of Cain. Look with me at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Seems harmless. Maybe even good, right? Until you realize exactly what Cain's doing. Remember God's curse upon Cain from last week? Look back up in verse 12. God says to Cain, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain was banished from his family and cursed to homelessness or wandering. So what does he do? He starts a family and builds a city. Again, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with this. But what I want us to see is that Cain is actively trying to undo the curse himself. He's rejecting God's word. He's the captain of his own ship. There's no one who's going to tell him what to do. He's a law unto himself. Now, before moving too much further along, I very quickly want to address a question I'm sure many of you are thinking. The text here says, Cain knew his wife. Where did these people come from, and just how closely related is she? Well, while the text doesn't explicitly tell us, we do get a clue in chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Genesis 5, 3 through 4. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Two quick points. Number one, we're meant to see here that there are certainly other sons and daughters. But Moses, in our text, zeroes in on two lines specifically for a very specific reason. Remember, this is a true historical narrative, and... Moses is telling the narrative to teach theology to Israel and to us. It's kind of like John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John 20, 30 through 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The text doesn't tell us everything that's going on, but it tells us specific things for specific reasons. So there are other sons and daughters. 
who are probably also having sons and daughters. Second, there's a vast amount of time that expires in these chapters. It's easy to read along in Genesis 3 or Genesis 4 or Genesis 5 and assume that it's just a matter of days or weeks. But we're looking at hundreds of years here. And if all of these other sons and daughters are also having sons and daughters, you end up with a lot of people over hundreds of years. Back to our text. So after God commands that Cain be an aimless wanderer, he does the exact opposite. He builds a city to dwell in. Further, what does he name that city? Enoch, after his son. Again, we can look at that and think, oh, how sweet. He named the city after his son. But it's not sweet. He's building a monument to his memory here, a memorial to himself. The name Enoch means dedication. Cain knew that eventually he's going to die because of the original curse in Genesis 3. So he names the city after his son. Psalm 49 verses 10 through 12 shows us the futility of this. Psalm 49, 10 through 12, it says, For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Let's keep going. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Now, Lamech is the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain. What have we learned so far with Moses' usage of the number seven? It's not by mistake. He's trying to highlight for us something important here. Without getting ahead of ourselves, next week we'll follow the line of Seth in chapter 5. We'll see a child named Lamech there too, by the way, who's a sharp contrast to this one. Same name, but a very different headline about his life. Moses is painting with contrast. That's what we're meant to see. And in our text, he's going to zero in on this Lamech, the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain. What's the first thing that we learn about Lamech here? Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. Uh Uh-oh. Before I address this, I just want to take a quick minute to explain that there are things like this all over Scripture. And hear this loud and clear. This isn't God condoning this practice. There's a huge difference in Scripture between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. Descriptive and prescriptive. In other words, is this just describing what happened or is it prescribing that we should go and do likewise? Lamech is the first recorded biblical polygamist. He has multiple wives. Is this descriptive or prescriptive? 
descriptive, right? It's describing what happened, not condoning it. Genesis 2, verse 24. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Jesus confirms this interpretation in the New Testament in Mark 10. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Lamech, like his great-grandfather Cain, simply doesn't care. He takes two wives. He spitefully violates God's law. We're not off to a good start here, are we? Let's keep going. Verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. I don't want to make too much of the names here, but the name Ada means pleasure, ornament, or beauty. The name Zillah means shade or shadows, possibly referring to the shadow of her lavish hair, according to commentators. We'll later see that Lamech names his daughter Naamah, which means loveliness. James Boyce comments here, he says, Here was a culture committed to physical pleasure, beauty, and charm, and not to those inner qualities that Peter describes as being, quote, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, quoting 1 Peter 3, 4. Beauty, in and of itself, isn't wrong or sinful, to be clear. But Moses is painting a portrait for us of this family line that's focused on everything but God. We'll come back to this in a second. So Lamech takes two wives, and from those two wives, God prospers him. I can't stress this enough. This is meant to be the shocking part of this text. This godless family seems to be prospering. They've built a city. They're having children, left and right. One commentator notes that a biased account would have ascribed nothing good to Cain. But the truth is more complex. Look at verses 20 through 22. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech's sons are successful in the eyes of the world. Jabal, it says, was the father of, meaning he pioneered the industry. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. He pioneered animal husbandry or ranching. Jubal, whose name means joy, it's where we get the word jubilee. Jubal, he pioneered the music industry. He's a successful artist. Then, Tubal-Cain. Attaching the name Cain to his name, we're not meant to forget that he's of Cain's line. I mean, the names Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal would have rolled off the tongue a lot better. But this last son has his great-granddaddy's name attached to him for a reason. He was the forger 
of all instruments of bronze and iron. These were the earliest forms of technology, and no doubt, weaponry. In fact, tubal means hammer or sharpen. The Israelites reading Genesis would have clearly picked up on this. Here's what I want us to see. There's a clear culture being formed in this city. And it's all apart from God. God is nowhere mentioned in this city or in this culture. Now, here's the question. What are we to make of cities? Let's admit, the first city described in the Bible isn't a pretty picture. Also, what about the culture we see forming there with agriculture, arts, technology? Let's address the city part first. What are we to make of cities? I love what James Boyce has to say here. He says, the problem with the, quote, godless city is not the city itself, but the godless. The problem of civilization without God is not civilization, but its godless characteristics. Our task is not to abandon earthly kingdoms, but to build God's kingdom in the midst of godless ones. And in so doing, look forward, quote, to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. Yes, The point here isn't to rip on cities, but to rip on godliness or godlessness. It's to show us where progressive man goes when he goes without God and without God's law. And what about their culture? Understand this. The specific gifts that, that Jabal and Jubal and Tubalcain had are valuable gifts in God's kingdom. Derek Kidner, he comments that the Bible nowhere teaches that the godly should have all of the gifts. At the same time, we are saved from overvaluing these skills. The family of Lamech could handle its environment, but not itself. Do you see that? Their city and their culture are moving towards more and more advanced, more and more beautiful. But they're godless. Cities and culture are not bad things in and of themselves. But when paired with godlessness, they're destructive. That's what we're meant to see. This is true with most things, isn't it? Music can be glorifying to God. Or it can be used to blasphemy him in glorifying sin. Technology can be used to save lives or to kill. Even something as simple as a knife. It can be a great tool used for great good or tremendous evil. You get the point. Second, having success in this world does not mean that God supports what you're doing. I'll say that again. Having success in this world does not mean that God supports what you're doing. When you you see someone who seems to have everything going for them, it doesn't mean that they're blessed by God. This is something that the so-called health and wealth gospel people would do well to learn. 
Many of these crooks have tons of money. Cars, houses, jets. Yet, what they're doing does not honor God. God doesn't approve of what they're doing by giving them worldly success. So don't be tempted to look at these guys and think, well, God's blessing him, so maybe they're actually godly. No. Having success in this world does not mean that God supports what you're doing. On the other side of that coin, it's possible to be completely godless and still succeed in this world. I think of the Steve Jobs and the Jeff Bezoses of the world. Completely godless and the portrait of worldly success. Genesis 4 here, these verses specifically, should give us new lenses to look through when we think of these things. Worldly success isn't high on God's list. That isn't true prosperity. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I encourage you to go read through all of Psalm 73 sometime. Psalm 73. I'll just give us a taste, read a handful of verses. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's looking at the prosperity of the world, and he's saying, I'm envious of it. Why is God prospering them? Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as as a garment. Skip down to verses 12 and 13. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And then finally in verses 27 and 28, he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Do you see that? It's so tempting to look around at the wicked world succeeding and then to question God's motives. But he knows what he's doing. Wickedness will ultimately be judged, and all will be made right, and it will be good to be near God. Back to our text. So, those are Lamech's kids, but verse 23 returns back to Lamech himself. This is poetry, and it's known as the Song of the Sword. Verses 23 through 24, zeroing back in on Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is quite the gentleman, isn't he? Not really. He's every wife's worst nightmare. In fact, he seems to be embodying the worst of the curse found in Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This isn't good authority exercised rightly. It's ruthless authoritarianism. It's godless. Look at these words. Hear my voice. Listen to what I say. You can imagine him marching in front of his wives, plural, singing this song as a taunt, beating his chest, flexing his muscles. Then look at what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for merely striking me. So not only is he a polygamist, he's bloodthirsty. This isn't even Old Testament justice, eye for an eye here. No, he killed a man simply for a wound. He killed a young man. This word could be translated child. He killed a child for striking him. And he's proud of this, parading in front of his wives and singing a song about it. Then he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, if God's going to avenge Cain sevenfold, Lamech says, I'm going to do seventy times better than God. It's a vow of complete vengeance, even for the smallest offense. He doesn't need God's protection in his own eyes. He can fend for himself. That's what he's saying. We're only seven generations away from Adam in the garden. And sin has reached a fever pitch. God's law has been trampled on. Creation order and marriage has been rejected. And he's boasting about murder. How progressive. This is what Moses wants us to see. Sin is spreading and increasing. What started in the garden certainly didn't stay there. It's infecting everyone and everything. What an awful note to end on. Well, praise God that the text doesn't end there. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. Point two, the line of Seth. I pointed this out last week, but do you see the contrast between verse 1 in chapter 4 and verse 25? Verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 25 now, as a contrast to that, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said... 
God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve's sense of pride, thinking that she's like God, producing offspring, is now diminished. She's now completely acknowledging God's absolute sovereignty and grace over her childbearing. Further, this word offspring, or zera, seed, it draws our attention back to Genesis 3.15 again. Genesis 3.15, God promises, he says, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to Satan here, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, Zerah, seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Offspring, same word here. There's hope of the promise once again. Eve's faith is shining here. She's trusting in God's promise. See this. In the, in the cosmic battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, God is faithful in continuing the line of the seed of, of woman. There's another seed here. And Eve's trusting in that. Then look at verse 26. To Seth a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord or Yahweh. This is fantastic. Does anyone remember last week what Abel's name meant? Breath, vapor, mist. And here, Seth, Adam's son, names his son Enosh. Which means, you ready for this? Weakness. Enosh means weakness. And yet, what do we see? At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. While call upon could be a reference to prayer, more often than not, when Moses uses that word, it means proclamation. Or proclaiming the Lord. Do you see what's being said here? While the line of strong men, according to the world standards, while the line of strong men are proclaiming themselves and naming cities after themselves, this line of weakness begins to proclaim Yahweh. They're proclaiming the Lord in their worship and in their words. They recognize their dependence on him. They make him central in their lives. They pray to him, worship him, and proclaim him. Kenneth Matthews writes this, and I love this. He says, Cain's firstborn and successors pioneer cities, civilized arts, but Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. And so I ask you this morning, what is true prosperity? What is true prosperity? Is it building a city? Being cultured? Succeeding financially but without God? Or is it weakness with full dependence upon the Lord? A life centered upon worship of the one true and living God? 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, Paul writes this. This is God speaking to Paul. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see the people of God, the, the people that God tends to use? Those who are dependent on him for strength. Those who call on him. Genesis 4 is a text of contrast highlighting the depth of sin and the two distinct lines of seeds. And I want to land the plane this morning by looking at another line of seeds that also includes Seth. Look with me at Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there. Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, starting in verse 23. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But look down at the bottom of this genealogy, Luke chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 37 through 38. Bottom of this genealogy. Luke's the only one who does this, by the way. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke traces the line of Jesus back through the line of Seth. And you know what? Jesus builds a new culture and a new city. Lamech's culture is one of constant vengeance. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And look what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 20 through 21. Matthew 18, 20 through 21. When Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? He thinks he's being really generous there. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You see what he's doing there. He's using this this line of Lamech, and he's flipping it on its head. Instead of vengeance, forgiveness, 77 times. Where the line of Lamech champions vengeance, the line of the lamb champions forgiveness. Can you imagine a church culture where this was the case? People forgiving one another 70 times 7? Jesus creates a new culture. And he also creates a new city. Hebrews 11.10, speaking of Abraham and commending Abraham's faith, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Revelation chapter 21 has a glorious description of this city. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw...
the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. What an amazing new city. Jesus creates a new culture, a culture of forgiveness, and a new city. Don't you want to be part of a culture like that, in a city like that? Here's the truth. If you're a Christian, you will be. If you're not a Christian, you can be. Hear this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth. He was the ultimate seed or offspring that Genesis 3.15 spoke of. He became human, put on flesh. He lived a perfect life in every way. He went to the cross and died a death that each of us deserved for our sin. And in so doing, he crushed Satan's head once and for all, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And you can be saved by repenting of sin and believing in Christ today. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. That's how you enter that heavenly city and that culture of forgiveness and grace. If you'd like to know more about that, I would be elated to talk with you after the service. I'll be just standing right over here. Rob's going to be out at the table. He would love to talk to you too. Or anyone in this room who's a Christian. They would be pumped to talk about the better Adam, the better Abel, the better Seth, Jesus Christ. He's the one that every single text in Scripture is about, including this one. He's the one who brings true and lasting prosperity. So, my encouragement for us today is that we join in the line of Seth and Enoch in continuing to proclaim the Lord as his people. Let's pray.